Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. And in today's episode, we explore the topic of skills and organisational change, unlocking future talent, leadership, diversity and inclusion through an important lens, the lens of disability. And we are in the best of company. And today we bring a new sporting edge of diversity as I'm delighted to be joined by not one, but two Paralympian greats, Claire Harvey and Lord Chris Holmes. Our first guest is Claire Harvey, MBE. A trained psychologist, Claire's public and private sector career has included working with the criminal justice system and as head of inclusive leadership at KPMG, where she led the firm to become one of the first professional services firms to contribute to the all-party parliamentary group on LGBT plus rights. In her sporting career, Claire was proud captain of the GB Paralympics team in London 2012. One of only two openly gay Paralympians in Team GB, she used the platform to raise awareness about the importance of inclusion. So passionate that inclusion is a key life skill and should be taught early, Claire is now CEO of Diversity Role Models, a charity seeking to eradicate bullying in schools. Claire, welcome and thank you for joining us. Our second guest is Lord Chris Holmes, MBE. As a former Paralympic swimmer, Lord Holmes won nine gold, five silver and one bronze medal across four games, including a record six gold medals at Barcelona in 1992. At the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, Chris was Director of Paralympic Integration and for four years held the role of Disability Commissioner at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Chris entered the House of Lords in 2013 and sits on the Future Talent Steering Group, examining the future of work and what this means for people and organisations. He is deeply passionate about technology and innovation and is Vice Chair of the Parliamentary Groups on Assistive Technology, Fintech, Artificial Intelligence and Blockchain and sits on many subject-specific committees. A qualified lawyer, he's chair of the Global Disability Innovation Hub, diversity advisor to the civil service, non-exec director at Channel 4 and chancellor at BPP University. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. And may we also take a moment to welcome your guide dog, Lottie, who is quietly presiding over the events here at the House of Lords. As always, we invite each guest to take a minute at the start of the show to talk about what they're particularly focused on at the moment, and then we'll take the discussion on from there. So Claire, let's start with you. What are you working on right now? Hi, so as you said, um, I'm at Diversity Role Models because I wholly believe that we need to teach young people early how to navigate the world around them, how to be inclusive to each other so that young people are growing up with the confidence and competence to be inclusive and without having their aspirations limited by what they think is and isn't possible. I think that will help the future of business because young people will come in with expectations and come in able to navigate in a sensible way. And, it, and it, is a, it is an interesting world to navigate at the moment because everything is, is constantly changing. So there'll be much in that that we'll, we'll, we'll unpick for sure. Um, Chris, Lord Holmes, Chris, if I may. Call me Chris, <laughs> <Thank you>. please. <laughs> so, so what are you particularly focused on at the moment? What I'm trying to do both within Parliament and beyond is link together inclusion and innovation as I fundamentally believe that inclusion is the absolute bedrock of any innovation. So I have a number of uh, projects underway. I'm just pushing through a private member's bill to prohibit unpaid internships. I think that would really help in terms of social mobility. I want a number of select committees, both in terms of assistive technology and technology in general. I published a report on blockchain on distributed ledger technology in the autumn. So really pushing 
the opportunity from the fourth industrial revolution. And I believe that for many of the groups that have been excluded and underrepresented across society, 4IR offers the greatest opportunity, not an inevitability because of itself technology is neutral, but a real opportunity if we grasp it and if we ensure that that gold and that beautiful golden thread of inclusion runs through every element of what we do going forward. And, and these are really interesting times because we talk a lot on the podcast about the digital skills gap. And we talk a lot about how, you know, the f- financial services industry particularly, but this applies to many sectors, is looking to uh, obviously embrace technology and data and analytics, artificial intelligence runs through that. But we are arguably struggling to reach a young, younger generation who don't necessarily want to work in the city. Um, so, Chris, let me start with you. In terms of looking then about, you know, we, we talk about the gig economy and we talk about, you know, uh, different working models. What do you see as being very hopeful for the future in terms of how corporates can embrace new talent? I think if we look at the issue, we're trying to address that blight which has been on our society since the beginning really and certainly in recent decades and that is the fundamental truth that talent is everywhere opportunity isn't and it's really the start point for any organization not least those in the city surely you'd want to draw on the brightest and the best talent in whatever form and from wherever that comes from. So there's a fundamental issue of organisations needing to look further, needing to look harder for that talent. And through that, the opportunity for those institutions, for those organisations, and indeed for our society and for our country is immense. And if that's put together with the opportunity from the fourth industrial revolution, 4IR, as we'll call it, going forward. It really is potentially an exciting time to address some of those issues that have really held people back, be it in terms of disability, be it in terms of gender, be it in terms of socioeconomic background. All and more of this can, but won't inevitably be addressed. It will still come back to those fundamentals of what is the attitudinal approach? What are the beliefs of people who are running organisations? What happens below the C-suite level in an organisation in terms of driving change? Because what we're talking about here really is transformational change and we have to grip that. It's not easy, of course it isn't, otherwise it would have happened a long time ago and we wouldn't be having this discussion today. But first start point people really have to believe that it's not only utterly possible but you absolutely have to go after it because now I think we're facing a great situation where organizations perhaps haven't lent into this as fully as they might truly going forward I believe become diverse or die as an organization And have you seen some good examples where corporates have, A, got that joke, and then secondly, sort of brought in, you know, initiatives that will drive that change? I think there have been some great examples, not least in the city and beyond, where it's been understood, where it's been led on, where there's been a clear commitment 
to cultural transformation through that organisation and where it's been predicated on that inclusive culture. So not fixating on protected characteristics, though an understanding of them is obviously important, but going far more profound than that and understanding that if the culture is got right, everything and joyously anything can potentially f- flow from that. Mm-hmm. And Claire, with your, with your work with you know, kind of young people, you were talking about the confidence and the competence. I mean, and they, they look at this world that Chris has just defined and, and uh, culture presumably plays very heavily into, yeah, that's the kind of business that I can see myself working in. Um, where, where do you see good examples where corporates have, have looked at how they need to project themselves, but also how they need to think about their culture? I think we've kind of gone through the the process of people trying to fix the people. Um, I think Chris is absolutely right. We, we, we're we in the space at the moment where people are looking at the behaviours and the attitudes and the values um, of the organisation and how that drives a culture. For me, the next step and the absolutely key step is to unpick some of the systems and structures that drive behaviours and drive a culture. Um, for, you know, it's great to talk about potential and talent is everywhere, but how you measure the talent will def- define how how you where you find that talent my one of my favorite sayings is you know if you measure a fish by its ability to to climb a tree then it will think it's useless for the rest of its life we need to have a system that enables young people to under understand what their talent is and then a system that enables them to really grow and thrive in that and then systems in the corporate world that actually measure the breadth of talent rather than how we define talent and the very static rigid measurements um, that create barriers to people to actually showing their talent or even managing their talent in a different way that helps them grow in an organisation. That's when we'll really unlock things. And, and do you see specific jobs where that kind of definition or that kind of measurement is is changing or has changed over, over the years? I think organisations have started to go on that journey. Lots of organisations I've worked with have started to look at actually how do we bring people into the organisation? What requirements do we need? A lot of that is still smoke and mirrors. Um, you can do away with qualifications as much as you like if you, if you know that your staff are still looking at which universities where people went to and that's a great thing for disability you know I went to Cambridge University to do my master's in reality if I'd have been in a wheelchair at this at that point there is no way I'd have gone to Cambridge because I physically could not get around it that's not a measure of my talent it's a measure of my ability to access somewhere mm-hmm. and I'd have gone somewhere else and then people have taken a different view about it because of the university I went to so it's really unpicking those those pointers that aren't written and aren't in the process, but we know people use as proxies for talent measurement. Which comes back to actually exactly what you were saying, Chris, about the middle management layer and then still, you know, kind of measuring in the same way that they've always been measured and always been been led as well. Are you seeing some good examples where, or, or do you have any advice for those middle management layers to think differently and be encouraged and supported in thinking differently? I think it has to be led and it, it's it's difficult to get the chief executive and the exco, the board to get this. But that's one thing. But truly then leading on it and driving that middle management here, that's so often where change of any kind just stops and gets clogged up mm. in the wheels, really. And that that's where the real focus needs to be. And the way to achieve this is to tie it firmly into every single element of the organisation. And when we were doing London 2012, right from the outset, we said we believe the way to make good games 
great games is to have access, diversity and inclusion hardwired into every single thing we do and every decision, not as a nice to have, not a CSR, not to park in HR, but because that was the only way that we could truly deliver on that sense of this being a games for everyone. Well, that's the same for any organisation, whatever field they're in, to get that breadth of talent, as Claire rightly said, to reimagine what we mean by talent and to then enable, unleash and empower that talent within these organisations What's not to get excited about with that? Yes, and and we talk we talk a lot about uh, helping. Uh, in fact, listeners to the podcast will know that I kind of keep coming back to this time and time and time again about how do you get through the sticky middle? How do you get through the they, they call it the permafrost layer exactly for that? And 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 one of the dynamics there that comes through a lot is around the appreciation of empathy as a manager and understanding that if you want to harness that that talent that you were just talking about there, Chris, um, then you need to be spending time with people that are so different from you. And, and I was very interested reading sort of about the um, uh, about your 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 day job as CEO about how you go into schools and you eradicate bullying in schools by teaching empathy. And I wonder if there are some interesting parallels that could be taken from working with children, the talent of tomorrow, and corporates to think about ad- adapting and adopting fr- from what they learn there. Absolutely, and I think actually the way that we do that is is where corporates need to go because um, from my time in the corporate world, you know, when we talk about fi- compare how we talk about financial governance to how we talk about inclusion. When you talk about financial governance, it's we must do this. This is a given. This is important. When we talk about inclusion, it's we encourage people to, we aspire to, we are committed to. The language is passive, and the the people in the middle, they are the absolute demonstrative thing of the culture it doesn't matter what the policy says people at the top will set the policy people at the bottom will follow the policy the people in the middle navigate the system flex the system to get what they want and what they do is get what they think is rewarded so all the time we talk about inclusion as an add-on we don't hardwire it into people's objectives we don't we have allies i'm you know i'm a great supporter of people being part of the conversation but we don't have we don't have financial governance allies we don't have the one person in the room who's going to talk about financial governance and then it doesn't matter to anyone else it's a given in your job and if you're not up for financial governance you don't work in the organization we've got to shift the language of inclusion away from reasonable adjustments so you know those poor disabled people will will make adjustments so they can fit in to they're talented we need them and therefore we need to fit we need to make it possible for them rather than we're constantly giving something up because the language is derogatory the language is negative and it connects people's brains with mm. diversity means less talented diversity means difficult and that's the thing we need to yeah. shift because that's what will get them the middle group i fundamentally believe you've got 10 percent of an organization who love inclusion and will do anything to achieve it You've got 10% of the people who don't like it and will never want to do it. But the people in the middle actually don't care one way or the other. They will go with what the culture requires and they will go with what's easiest and quickest to get what they want. And that's the group of people we don't spend any time talking to. And as we're thinking about uh, those young, that young talent coming into an organisation, clearly one of the biggest dynamics they bring is technology. And thinking through, you know, very, very flexible mindsets around how you use technology to achieve what you want to achieve, how you um, use social tools in order to buy products and services and make life decisions. 
as they come into organizations, organizations have a lot that they can learn from them. How do we close that void so that in time it does chip away to the middle management layer to go, if you actually want to achieve the performance and the financial governance rigor that you need, you need to be looking for smarter tools and the smarter tools are run by smarter people. Uh, are we, is, that, is that just hypothetical or is, is that actually achievable? I think it's, it's absolutely necessary um, and it is achievable, but it takes a brave organisation to really look at their culture and create an environment of psychological safety. You can have diversity. Diversity is all around us, whether we choose to see it or not. But being in, the, in a management role and being safe enough to offer other people's views and know that you can be wrong sometimes and other people will have a different view to you and accepting that is you require psychological safety of your position and when you're new into an organization being able to offer that idea being able to disagree with the most senior person in your room being able to say no I don't agree also requires a level of psychological safety and again it goes back to that cultural piece unless you drive that that is a valuable thing then it, it's pointless you've got talent in your room that sat there doing nothing. And do you think that, where should that be insisted upon? Is that in the appraisal process? Is that in leadership training? I mean, I'm always a bit wary of training because we've had so much unconscious bias training and so much investment in other areas. Where where should the, the time and attention be focused? I'm sure Chris will have a view as well, but um, I absolutely love... Chris is, I love Chris, full stop, but I love Chris's view of... <laughs> a bit of a of, fan club going on yeah, here, it has to be said. It's actually Lottie. It's reciprocated. It's just Lottie I love. Chris is just a vehicle to Lottie. Um, I, I think it's that golden thread. It has to be absolutely everywhere and it has to be meaningful and there has to be a personal consequence to either a, a positive consequence for doing it and a negative consequence for not doing it. That's when you create shifts in behaviour. And, and I would almost kind of push that a little bit further and argue that that should be therefore embedded in uh, what matters quite often in the city around bonuses and payments and remuneration uh, and, and account full accountability that translates into something that people really care about. And it has to be in absolutely everything, not just the things that we think about when we think about people. I'm absolutely with Chris that this is not, inclusion is not a people issue, it's a governance and culture issue and therefore you need to measure it in things like who gets given what opportunity mm -hmm. who gets given which placements who you know who's sat next to who those things that aren't about people aren't about appraisals because when you get to the appraisal the same as when in education when you get to the point that people are doing qualifications whether they achieve or not has everything to do with the barriers along the way rather than their pure talent so the measurement will be what you've set it up to be yes Chris anything you'd, you'd add there I completely agree with that and fundamentally it, it either matters or it doesn't matter. Now, an organisation can choose to think it doesn't matter behind the scenes and put up a very good, glossy spin to what they're doing or not doing. But ultimately, if it matters, which it does, it must matter in every moment in every policy practice procedure, in every part of the organisation, in every conversation. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. It's got to matter in every moment that we are on this planet. Otherwise, it's just something for high days and holidays, something you could do if you've got the time, something to add on, something to get some CSR benefit from. Pointless. It's for the birds. It matters in every moment. Reasons to be cheerful on this, I think, that if you put together... Gen Y, millennials coming through with what the disruptive force of 4IR will bring, 
we can be pretty confident that work as structured, organisations as structured in the old way are just not going to work for either those people coming through and the technology. So, as I say, become diverse or die. It may be a slow, painful death. It may be an overnight death for those organisations, but death for sure it will be. But flipping that... Sorry, these are your reasons to be cheerful, and we've ended up on death. (laughs) Yeah, Absolutely. There's, there's nothing to be more cheerful about yes. than a non-diverse, non-inclusive organisation dying. That's uh, very, very much uh, to be uh, to be cheerful about that. So to flip that, the opportunity is immense because if if you imagined it in a different sense and sat down with that middle management part of an organisation and said, I've got a suitcase of cash here that you can have. All you have to do is open the suitcase. It's not locked. There's no combination. All you have to do is open that suitcase and embrace it. Go, give me the suitcase. Well, we're talking about something far more profound, far more meaningful, far more deliverable of bucks than just a suitcase of cash. It's a stunning opportunity to empower, to enable people to flourish in an organisation. But it's something to be incredibly positive about without being naive as to the difficulty and the challenges, as Claire said, the barriers that are currently on that journey. And I think we've set that up the wrong way. I mean, Chris is obviously quite a lot older than me. Um, and But even when I look back, the kind of the discussion, particularly around disability, was set up in such a negative way, you know, that people would come into organisations and say, oh, you know, if you get this wrong, the Equality Act or the DDA, as it was then, you're going to get sued. You know, why would you take a risk on employing a disabled person with that level of risk if you didn't need to? Mm-hmm. We, we went through these ridiculous programmes where you put people in in a wheelchair or blindfolded them for a day and then go oh now look this is what it's like of course it's not I didn't rock up for my first job in my first day of being in a wheelchair you know I'm sure you didn't rock up on your first day you learn to navigate the system so everything we talked around around disability was negative everything we talked around was about how difficult life is completely the wrong message why is you know it's no wonder now that you know almost double the younger people of dis- with a disability are unemployed because you take on where they can get qualifications, you take on their ability to thrive in those environments and then you take on the negative views of people in organisations, the fearful views of people in organisations of doing the wrong thing. It's not it's not born out of, you know, not wanting to employ people. It's a, it's a really toxic combination that we need to break down and we'll only break it down by experience learning. So that marks a perfect moment to turn to Cynthia and Robert, who have been on the lookout for research to support today's discussion. The House of Commons briefing paper, People with Disabilities in Employment, published in January 2018, has some key findings. There were 3.5 million people of working age, 16 to 64, with disabilities in employment between April and June 2017. This is an employment rate of 49%. The employment rate for people without disabilities was 80%. People with disabilities are more likely to be working part-time than those without disabilities. 24% of people with disabilities aged 16 to 64 were working part-time compared to 36% of people without disabilities of the same age. 
In the Facts and Figures 2018 Disability in the United Kingdom report by the Papworth Trust, one in five employers said they would be less likely to employ a disabled person. The disability charity Scope found that 48% of disabled people have worried about sharing information about their impairments or condition with their employers. Thank you, Cynthia and Robert. And as always, links to the research and references can be found on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not with an S. You can also sign up for early notifications of future episodes. Please do follow us on Twitter at diversitypod. And you can find us on all good podcast channels. And if you've enjoyed the show, we always appreciate a rating. It really helps promote the episodes. We, we've been talking sort of quite conceptually Obviously, it's been a very important discussion about um, corporate dynamics and culture and and the situation. But I know, Claire, you've got some some really key statistics that you're keen to share. Yeah, because I think um, what happens in the corporate world um, is we all make indicative decisions. We all make individual decisions about certain things. And what we don't do enough is hold up the mirror to say, what's the outcome of that group of decisions? And the Papworth Trust have produced some great research that really brings home the disadvantage that many disabled people face. So disabled people are twice as likely to be unemployed. um, And 44% of working age disabled people are economically inactive, which is four times higher than non-disabled people if you add on to that and this is chris's area in terms of technology if you add on to that that 50 percent of disabled people don't have home access to the internet the more we rely on internet and information and technology to be a key driver in terms of key skills in the workplace the further we're going to leave this group behind mm-hmm. i think the, the, when you look at the numbers of people who are currently digitally excluded, financially excluded, all the groups that you'd imagine are tragically overrepresented, disabled people, older people, certain geographies, lower socioeconomic groups, all that talent not able to get onto the pitch. And as we go forward, digital skills and indeed digital understanding are just going to need to be core. Digital literacy will be as important as numeracy and literacy. And if people are shut out from the outset, what chance? And one of the things that we we talk about quite a lot on the podcast series, and we certainly started our first podcast uh, talking about race and the the concerns that certain people have around use of language. I mean, you must come across this quite a lot in terms of people just fumbling for the ways to describe who you are as an individual, your contribution at work. Uh, you're, you're smiling as I'm speaking. And already I can feel myself being very cautious about language to be using. I and mean, whether you talk about people with a, with a disability or disabled people or et cetera. Do you come across this a lot? And what do you say to, to young people in schools, Claire, about, um, about how to tackle the topic? We come across it all the time. You know, on a personal level, I get at least kind of twice a week the random comments that people feel the need to say something but don't know what to say. So I'll often be whizzing around London and as I'm going to get a tube, someone will say, keep going, you're really doing well and things like that, you know, because they feel the need to say something, that nervousness, but they don't know what to say. And equally, you know, I hear people stumble around. Are we going to walk somewhere? Are we going to stand up somewhere? You know, it, it, they're just words. And what we teach young people is, Find the language that you're comfortable with. Find the thing that you feel identifies you and then kind of help other people use that. And 
it doesn't be curious you can know the difference between being offensive and being curious and if you get the language wrong then people will know your intention is to is to get it right but most importantly you'll learn and you'll use something differently next time but I think that fear of getting it wrong particularly in that middle management level where you're being viewed from both sides you know in a spotlight means that people just don't have the conversation and we know from the work that we do that you can't be what you don't see and that means you can't be inclusive as as a person who's not within a group if if you don't see other people doing that successfully and you can't be something with aspirations if you don't see anybody like you in that area so it's really important to break down and have that conversation and that's where the role of the media plays a very very important part uh i mean it's encouraging when we look at uh how diversity is being represented on mainstream media as well is is that something you're particularly sort of focused on i think as claire said if there's not the comfort then there's not the confidence no conversation, no communication, no connection, no change. I remember years ago, at a, when I was working in the cities, lovely uh, person on reception there, and one day they said to me, you know, you're always so positive, you always look uh, so smiling, you know, particularly being unsightly as you are. And I thought, well, I see what you're getting at there, and it's all perfectly okay and better to have that it doesn't matter if somebody gets the words wrong doesn't matter at all it's about intention it's about attitude it's about enabling the environment where there's the comfort and the confidence to connect and engage to anybody don't assume just ask and if you get a negative response that's the other person's problem not yours this is why when we were doing 2012 we wanted a broadcaster who could really share that vision and be so important in terms of the transformation around the Paralympic Games and working with Channel 4 and the coverage I knew they could do a great job games time sport coverage would be fantastic but we worked together on an idea for a program called The Last Leg and as soon as we put the treatment together I knew that this potentially would be the thing that would make the difference getting them to put it on the main channel. They wanted to put it on E4. I knew it had to go on Channel 4 on the main channel. And to have a section in there where it would be called, is it okay to dot, 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 and people would email in, tweet in with all their questions and comments around to just demystify, to make everything around disability a safe space and take away all of the potential awkwardness, the eggshells, comfort, confidence, connection change I have to it has been a fantastic conversation uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you both very much for joining us Claire and Chris thank you thank you you're welcome this episode of diversity podcast was produced by me Kieran Yates on behalf of Julia Street's productions Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roy Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. 
it all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.